1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Enders, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Kelly I. Aliano, the author of a new game studies publication called The Performance of Video Games, Enacting Identity, History, and Culture Through Play. The publisher is MacFarland. Before we jump right in, though, I want to let you know that if you like our show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the audio platform of your choice and share this episode with your friends. And now back to the show. When viewed through the context of an interactive play, a video game player fulfills the roles of both actor and spectator. Watching and Influencing a Game Story in Real-Time, this book we are talking about presents video gaming as a virtual medium for performance, scrutinizing the ways in which a player's interaction with a narrative informs personal, historical, social, and cultural understanding. Centering the author's own experiences as both a video game player and performance scholar, the book thoroughly applies concepts from theater and performance studies. Kelly, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Kelly, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, of course, including your favorite game, and the one or even the ones you're playing right now.
1: Sure thing. So hi everybody, I'm Kelly. I have a doctorate in theater from the City University of New York Graduate Center. And I currently work at the New York Historical Society in their education department. I've been gaming pretty much my entire life. I started with CD-ROM games, like Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego as a kid. And then I got a Wii and an Xbox 360 in the early 2000s. And it was then that I got really serious about playing video games, especially first person shooter games, which people are often surprised about when they meet me, that that's uh, the type of game that I gravitated towards. But I found the high pace and the kind of clear objectives of that type of game play just really rewarding and really invigorating. At the same time, I was also a graduate student and I was working in the field of performance and I was playing a lot of video games. I was reading a lot about performance and I started to see an overlap between the practices of gaming and the theories of performance, which you might imagine were the early ideas that shaped the research and conference papers that ultimately came Mm -hmm. together to become the book we're talking about today, The Performance of Video Games. In terms of my favorite games, I'm a huge fan of Halo especially Halos 2 and 3 and usually I've said that Portal is my favorite video game but now probably I would have to say it's Animal Crossing New Horizons Um, that's probably become Mm. all-time number one Um, I have not missed a day of playing since I purchased it at the start of the pandemic in March of 2020 oh, wow. every day. I spend about <laughs> 20 minutes or so um, on my <laughs> island in Animal Crossing. I'm, I'm quite devoted to that. And generally, I right now uh, play a great deal of Nintendo Switch games, Pokemon, and um, I played Untitled Goose Game, a lot of things that I can play handheld um, for the convenience and the pleasure of being able to play in that way.
0: Yeah. When I opened up your book, um, well, let me, let me just say I was really astonished by 2Henry, uh, by, uh, my favorite player, too. I think it was the cutest thing I've ever read in a long time in a game studies publication. Thank you. <laughs> and as we all know, writing and publishing a book is a long journey, so you really <laughs> seem to love, Henry. Please tell us, or our listeners, how did you come to write the performance of video games?
1: Thanks so much uh, for your nice note about the dedication. Um, Henry is my partner, and he was the person who really, as an adult, kind of um, kept me into gaming as a part of our identity and of our experiences. Um, he really encouraged me to keep playing video games. He bought me my first PlayStation and continues to walk me through games when I happened to struggle, and that was really true for me in the early days. Um, I had played, as I mentioned, as a child, a lot of tech based games, things where you read the prompt, and then you would type in the answers. Um, So switching to console gaming as an adult was um, a bit of an adjustment for me. And the Wii was something I had played a lot in my early 20s. But of course, that played so differently. That was so much about being up and active in the room. Um, So this was a way for us to kind of bond together Mm. as people as well as really formative to me as becoming someone for whom playing video games was really a central part of uh, my identity as an adult. Um, So in addition to that, when there's maybe an older game or a, a previous installment in a series that I might not have played that isn't so easy to get access to play now like I can always count on Henry to tell me um, about that game because he played on consoles pretty much from the the very beginning and you know we were we were children born in the in the mid to late 80s and then through the 90s so really he has an encyclopedic knowledge of uh, of video games and and that's sort of how the the dedication came to be, just thinking about how this was something that brought us together, but also something that I think is really Um, just kind of central to our identity as a couple. In terms of the book itself, um, as I said, it was really a combination of my interest in playing video games along with being a PhD candidate at the same time. Um, Gaming became my go-to to unwind from the rigors of being in a PhD program. And the more I played while I learned about theater and performance, the more overlap I really started to see between the two forms. And the field was quite different at this point. I started at the Graduate Center in 2008. So we're talking about well over a decade Mm. ago at this point. Um, And while people were working in video games um, extensively at that point, there wasn't as much interdisciplinary work as we see happening now. And in a program like the one I was in, which was really theater with a capital T, A lot of the research was really meant to be focused on dramatic literature, theater history, theater theory, in a really rigorous and specific way. That being said, I was really fortunate that the doctoral program I was in encouraged us to pursue our own independent research interests and in a class on opera of all things uh, my professor dr judith millis she allowed me to do an extensive research project on halo and try and combine halo with what we had learned about theater theory in that first year of my doctoral studies. And even though it had nothing to do with the particular course topic, she saw that this was something that I was passionate about, that potentially had a publication future because the field was really starting to uh, come into its own. Um, And she allowed me to write what ultimately became a really sprawling paper. Like I would not share that Hmm. paper now um, (laughs) because it had so many different topics all crammed into 125, 125 page seminar paper. But from it, I was really able to start seeing the threads of where my thinking might go. And I excerpted from that for what became my first ever conference presentation at the 2010 Performance Studies International Conference. Um, And I got a lot of positive response. At that conference, and I realized that the conversations happening in those academic communities were starting to see the potential for this interdisciplinary conversation. I remember being asked a question um, that... uh, One of the audience members asked me, are you trying to say that Halo is as important as a doll's house? And I think about that question a lot, because in some respects, I suppose I was right. A doll's house was a dramatic statement of its moment in history. And Halo is a dramatic statement of a different moment in history, but both as creative entities. They say something about their point in time. And from there, during the remaining six years of my graduate study, my professors were just very generous in giving me the space to pursue this research interest. And I was able to then go to more and more conferences with this particular research, in particular, I was part of a number of working groups through the American Society for Theater Research that were essential to my formulation of the central themes of the book. And then for my qualifying exam for my Ph.D., I was allowed to propose and read in a field called theatricality of the video game, guided by Dr. Edward Miller. Mm -hmm. And I pretty much from that field was making the argument that I was going to still do my dissertation on theater of the ridiculous. um, And my two other fields were focused on that, but that once I completed my dissertation and then uh, completed a book based on my dissertation research, the next thing I would do would be to take this research on theatricality of the video game to develop a second monograph. So my first bubble, my first book theater of the ridiculous a critical history was published by McFarland um, in uh, right around the beginning of 2019. And pretty much right as soon as that was done, I started working on figuring out what the contours for this book project would be. And essentially what I started with was just collecting up those earlier research projects, seeing what the themes were, what Papers had content in them that I might want to develop into a chapter or a section of a chapter. Um, And, you know, I just kept gaming throughout the whole time so that I would be sure that whatever games I decided to reference in the Ultimate Book would feel relevant at the time the book came out, um, which was something that I was very aware of that, you know, as the decade went on, that some of the game titles were quite a bit away from the actual publication uh, of when the book might come out. And, and that was it. And that really led me, um, I, I signed the contract about, about two and a half years ago for the book with McFarland and they were just wonderful in shepherding the book through the whole publication process.
0: Wow. Only 2019 you said, wow.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Wow. I mean, <laughs> you're a real machine then, right? Thank
1: you. Wow. I, I, get, I, I love writing. <laughs>
0: Well, I'd like to circle back a bit um, because as far as I can tell, in order to explore your ideas and arguments, you use key video game instances combined with ideas from theatrical as well as performance theory to find out more about major questions regarding identity, memory, history, selfhood and culture put forward by those game examples. So within the first chapter, you use Halo as an example of all of the phenomena explored throughout the remainder of the book. Now, as someone who bought his first Xbox back in the days because the Master Chief and Cortana were entering the playground, I can totally relate. Um, But I know this sounds crazy. Let's assume for a second, I've never heard about the Halo saga. Why did you pick this iconic or shall we say now iconic shooter?
1: That's such a great question. And it's one that I grappled with a lot throughout this process. It was something I kept coming back to, okay, well, why Halo? Why would I kind of ground the entire argument on this? And obviously, from the narrative I just shared about my own experience, there was this personal reason that that had been the first project I had ever written. So originally, the book project I had in mind was going to be like a Comprehensive study of the Halo series using different installments of the series itself to grapple with different thematic elements that I wanted to cover. Um, and it was an idea I was very intrigued about because. Within theater studies, individual plays get a lot of attention. They get whole books, sometimes many books written about the single play title whereas video games don't often get that kind of attention yet. There there are um, whole monographs now that are about single games but it's certainly something where I think there's still a lot of room for Mm -hmm. folks to contribute in that way. Um, But ultimately I kept trying to make that model work, and I often was coming up against the fact that I was sort of forcing a particular game to fit a particular theory or vice versa, and it wasn't feeling organic that the theory and the example were talking to one another in as meaningful a way as I might have hoped. So my second idea that I played around with for a few years um, before writing the proposal was that maybe it would be a book just about first-person shooters, that first-person shooters are such a unique type of video game in the way they construe player to avatar to game environment to narrative and so forth, that that could be the anchoring principle. I went so far as to have drafted a version of the proposal that um, would have only covered FPS-style games, but ultimately, even by introducing that wider framework of a game type as opposed to particular game theories, I found that the model was too limiting for the larger theoretical claims I was trying to make, yeah. which then brought me back to the question that you started with uh, here of why Halo. And my thinking was this, if I could put Halo at the center of the conversation it would give me something to start from right look here there's this one game series and i was going to claim that it possessed in some form every one of the major themes that I wanted to go into in more depth later in the book. And I had actually used a similar structural model for my book on theater for the ridiculous. I put Charles Ludlam as the key example of, hey, he's got all the qualities of what ridiculous theater is. I studied them in his work. And then in each of the subsequent chapters, I could branch out, take each one of those qualities and explore it in more detail. Mm -hmm. with a different example and halo seemed to offer me the same sort of a structural model the games um our, our narrative largely, and that is a narrative that is based on classical myth, right? We've got the lone hero of the Master Chief. He's got his spiritual guide of Cortana. They're on this mission. They have to save the world. Um, it fit really well with Joseph Campbell's ideas about the hero narrative, Secondly, the story is deeply postmodern. It's very self-referential. It has this um, kind of interesting structural quality where it often folds back on itself, where it references within the Halo universe, where things have a kind of perfect circular conclusion, where the end of the games, of the third game, mirrors the opening of the first game in really interesting ways. And it has these big questions about post-humanism, which I know is something uh, we can talk about in more depth later, but the idea that he has this emotional connection, our protagonist of the Master Chief Whip, mm-hmm. a an AI character, um, is something that really grounds the work in conversations of the post-human, of living in this very mediated technological age. And then, of course, right, we've got... A gameplay through the first-person shooter model, um, that's all about empowering the spectator to play. I was very taken with that tagline of finish the fight because Mm -hmm. it construes a complex spectator-player positionality. There's no distance right between me as the player and Master Chief as the character. He has to finish the fight, so I have to finish the fight. It's a command right at the player themselves. And to me, as someone coming from a performance background, that the quintessential experience of the actor embodying a role. They become the character. And it's just so fascinating in video games because that structure happens, but with a difference. Unlike the actor embodying the role, putting their body into the space in front of the camera or on the stage as that character, there's always this distance that exists. When we game, we can see the character even as we play as the character that virtual divide so i recognize that there were likely many 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 other games that could have worked as the grounding example but because halo was a favorite of mine because it really articulated the qualities that i was seeking I was able then to privilege this auto-ethnographic quality of using my own experiences as a player of video games to bring an authenticity to the work while being um, honest to the theoretical argument I was trying to build.
0: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I I really need to get back to Halo. You really? (laughs) Yeah. This is maybe the greatest appetizer of all times. You heard it here first, guys. (laughs) (laughs) And the next chapter, you use acting and spectatorship theory to explore how video games allow us to reflect on how players come to know themselves through their reflection in and by their in-game avatars please take us through your thoughts here in order to gain a better understanding of your argument
1: great Um, I felt that as a performance scholar, it was this that was the unique lens that I could bring to the conversation of video game play. Pretty much as soon as I found out that there was a field studying video games, I was like, I need to be in that. Um, But I'm not an expert on the mechanism or programming of video games. I I don't work in code. I'm, I'm not you know, sort of technically minded in that way. Um, But I know a good deal, right, about dramatic literature, about how literature is structured, about how um, narrative builds and falls across a dramatic arc. And additionally, I'm uh, knowledgeable, right, about what happens in a live performance, what the unique aesthetic qualities are of live performance, and then how we can theorize about experiences that are, meant to be live and and what happens in those sorts of spaces. So Mm -hmm. of course I'm building here on a rich history of, of, um, literature in the field that connects interactive technology with live performance, which begins in the early 1990s with Brenda Laurel's computers as theater. But I wanted to extend that to consider the role that interactive virtual play has in our contemporary moment. Um, you know, there's been the argument, I'm, I'm not new in saying that gaming Is a kind of performance. But I think one of the things that I felt was vital that we recognize is that to some degree, we're all interacting with the virtual in some way Mm -hmm. in our 21st century lives. That there isn't really this separate category of people who, oh, I do things that exist in the digital or that exist in the virtual, and other people who don't. That we've integrated the technological, the virtual, the digital into our lives to such a degree that there's almost an necessity, that we understand the impact of our virtual experiences on how we think about ourselves, our culture, our history, and our identity. Um, and that that was the grounding right for the subtitle of the book, that these are the qualities that I think are... are um, our, that we can explicate through mm-hmm. a deeper understanding of our relationship to the virtual. And then, of course, you know, for somebody else, perhaps, if they wanted to pick up where my work left so leaves off, taking that to a larger discussion of how our other interactions within digital and virtual spheres, things like social media and so forth, how those might um, intersect with the shaping of self. So my argument, then, is what we, that we can use what we know from the theories of theater and performance to make sense of the video gaming experience. And by doing so, we can then gain a better sense of who we are and how we came to be that way and the we implying as human beings, right, as as. as humanity um, hmm. in some sort of larger cultural sense um, in our contemporary moment and that we have each to some degree been shaped by video games and that is true on a cultural level and for many that's true on an individual level as well and that we can make sense of that through an understanding of the performative aspects within the video games and how those performative aspects impact us.
0: Hmm. Now, in chapter three, you incorporate theories of post humanism, humanism, sorry, and um, in particular memory to, and I quote you here, complicate our understanding of selfhood. Well, um, let's, let's um, step back for a second. Could you please unfold and reconstruct, or let's say even slightly easyfy, <laughs> your thought process here for our listeners to get the whole picture?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of my work, even outside of the things that I do on video games, is in the field of post-humanism. Hmm. And post-humanism basically theorizes that human beings are not something separate from or special in comparison to the technological prostheses that we use in order to complete actions. Um, And this whole idea goes back into the mid-20th century with Alan Turing's experiments, where he would sit, the, the idea was if you sat a user down in front of a computer and you didn't tell them who they were interacting with, whether it was a man, it was a woman, or just another computer. And the difficulties that people would face being able to tell the difference of who was a person and who was a computer um, is kind of the, the founding idea here, right? How do we separate ourselves from the technological? And we use these technological prostheses, even in the simplest of actions, right? If if someone were to say, well, I'm definitely not post-human, I don't use any technology, I might ask, well, did you write anything down today? What did you use to write it down? If you picked up a pencil and you used the pencil so that you could write something, in a sense, you have become post-human because that pencil is a technological prosthesis that allowed you to be able to complete Mm -hmm. the action of writing. So from this perspective, there's no distinct divide between this is technological and this is human. There's more of a continuum between the two things, right? A robot could potentially be equivalent to a human being if it could complete the same tasks with the same efficiency and quality. This goes back to Carol Chapek's play RUR, rossum's Universal Robots, right? The humans yeah. create the robots to make their lives better, and then the robots are like, well, wait a minute, we don't want to work for you, and they overthrow humanity, which has become a very common trope in science fiction since the 1920s. And that's because, from a post-human perspective, those uh, technological beings or any of the digital interactions that I argue about in my work on video games would potentially be equivalent to any corporeal beings or corporeal actions that happen in this so-called real world that we operate from, right? That my technological or virtual or digital experiences can affect me and shape me as a person. And obviously this is all really fascinating from a theoretical perspective, and I could probably go on about it um, for a very long time. I Uh also recognize this is a concept that can be very, very troubling to actually confront um, in the work um, that kind of grounds the principles of post-humanism from N. Catherine Hales. She talks about the pleasure and terror of post-humanism. And I think that dichotomy between pleasure and terror is really, really useful. There is a pleasure, of course, in being able to use technology to expand our lives, use technological creations to make our lives better and easier. But of course, as we know from those um, robot revolution narratives I mentioned before, that comes with a real fear, that terror that we could replace ourselves with technological inventions. And I think the same fear permeates a lot of our reckoning with virtual interactions as well, that have we or will we come to supplant our real world experiences, interactions, relationships with digital or virtual ones, right? That is there something that's really troubling about saying, well, a virtual experience is equal to a real-world experience, would that then lead people to say, well, then I'm not going to bother with the real world. I'm just going to stay with the virtual. And this is something, right? Ernest, Ernst Klein's, um Ready Player One deals with mm-hmm. the, that question. And my personal feelings on this are twofold. I think, first and foremost, that digital interactions have taken on a very significant role in our lives. I don't think it's possible for us to deny that we're shaped by online, by video game interactions. But to me, this doesn't necessarily have to be an entirely negative thing. As Jane McGonigal argues, right? We can be enriched, we can have our minds open up, and we can have our experiences expanded beyond what's possible in our day-to-day lives because of the possibilities offered to us by technology. So this leads me to that concept of prosthetic memory. And prosthetic memory would be memories that are created in a synthetic way. So they're created virtually, right, like information on a computer being uploaded into somebody's mind, even if they didn't actually live through those experiences, which, right, if we're looking for the terror side of the coin, I think prosthetic memory starts to make that um, come to the foreground. Once again, it's a, Potentially quite problematic sort of practice, which is explored in a lot of science fiction. That yeah. if people's identities are shaped by their memories, and we're now at a point technologically where we might say that the things that happened virtually or digitally are uploaded into our memory banks as if they were real life experiences. What does that say about the shaping of memory, right? That famous moment in Blade Runner where the replicant is saying that, you know, he's experienced things you couldn't possibly imagine, that whether those memories are real in the way we think of real memory or not, they still have that sort of impact. If we're giving that sort of power to our virtual interactions, how are we fundamentally altering what it means to be human, what it means to be alive, and then what the implications are of being human and or being alive and what gets included in the category of living or human by that logic right how would we define Mm. what's human as opposed to machine um i wrote an article actually about animal crossing new horizons for a puppetry journal that in which i made an argument that it is an excellent example of this post-human phenomenon Particularly because of when it happened to be released in March of 2020, it offered its players an opportunity to have a sense of purpose and meaning day after day with its built-in tasks. And this was during the height of the pandemic quarantine Um through the mechanism of the game, we could travel to our island even while travel in our communities was prohibited. We could interact with our friends even when socializing was strongly frowned upon. And we could complete daily tasks and earn rewards even when many of us were out of work. So in this way, the game supplanted real life but it offered a real pleasure to its players. Of course, though, if someone took this too far, thinking of their island as real life at the expense of the real world, that then would be quite terrifying. And that, to me, is kind of a clear summation of how the post-human works through the lens of Animal Crossing. <sighs>
0: Halo and Animal Crossing. Just just taking a note here what to do after this interview. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are entering the final round now, so to speak, and this is where I'd like to ask my guests uh, for a little meta reflection. Um, first of all, what aspects and ideas would you have loved to include in the performance of video games that didn't make the cut? And secondly, and I'm really excited to ask that one. Where do you see game research or game studies as a research field in general at the moment?
1: Yeah, those are great uh, questions. In all truth, um, I was super lucky that I was able to include nearly everything I wanted in the book. Though my Animal Crossing work was shortened in the book, and as I said with the last example, I continued to pursue that um, elsewhere, and that was just largely because of timeline when. Animal Crossing came out and when I'd really started to theorize it versus when some of the deadlines were coming up for um, submitting drafts of the book manuscript just didn't align um, in in a way that would allow me to explore the game in the ways that I wanted um, mm-hmm. that that being said uh, you know if it if I had been looking to write something um, longer or something maybe more comprehensive in terms of coverage of video game titles I think it would have been great to be able to include more game examples really to test all of the theories um, and I think it would have been great to um, be able to bring in some voices of other folks who play video games and be able to have that kind of dialogic quality. Um, And that's kind of my hope with the book project now that it exists in the world, that people will be inspired to dive into conversation that if anyone out there ends up reading it. I I really, you know, I'd love to hear what people think about it, what theories work for games that you have played, where there are places where you think the theory kind of breaks apart because of the nature of a particular game. And, And sort of my dream is that future video game scholars will pick up some of the concepts here and mold them and fit them to their analyses of their favorite games. Because I think there's something wonderful about the spirit of fandom um, from which I wrote the book that I'd love to see um, exist in the scholarly field as more and more people are entering into it and bringing their own love of their own favorite games into uh, the work that we do as academics. And I have to say, this is a really superb moment for game studies as a field as i mentioned earlier a little over a decade ago when i was just first getting my feet wet in the field there wasn't a lot of scholarship happening beyond this conversation right of the ludic versus the narrative debate Mm. um and things tended to exist more at a um, kind of a bird's eye view, video games overall, as opposed to very specific studies of individual types or individual titles of yeah. video games. But here, um, as we're approaching 2023, um, I see rich and complex and specific discussions taking uh, taking shape at conferences and in the many publications that are being released. I'm excited to see Particularly the interdisciplinary work that others are doing, people who are established within particular fields, as I was in theater and performance studies, and bringing that to talk to and with video games and then vice versa, people who are really grounded in the conversations within the video game field, starting to bring that out into the conversations in other fields within the humanities and beyond, um, I think is going to be really, really exciting to see how those, uh, how those discussions take Shape and I would make the argument: it's a great moment to be a video game scholar, and and I think we're going to continue to see rapid expansions of the field in the decade ahead.
0: Here, mm. here, people, let's do this. We can only uh, work together and get really some strong and solid substance for the future generation of game scholars. <laughs> um, well, Kelly, we've taken a lot of your time. Please tell us, what are you working on right now? And of course, what will you be playing next? Aside from the two aforementioned titles, of course.
1: Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, chatting with you today. And I, I hope everyone enjoyed um, listening to uh, to my rambling this uh, on this uh, chat. I'm um, so
0: sure, I'm sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I'm currently in the process of soliciting proposals for a book on environmental humanities and video games, um, which I'm co-editing over uh, under contract over at Palgrave Macmillan. So if anyone out there um, works in the field and is interested in submitting something on environmental humanities and video games, we're still looking um, for a few more proposals on that subject. Mm -hmm. Um, In addition, um, in my work at New York Historical, we've just launched two new curriculum websites that I oversaw, two new units of our Women in the American Story program, and the final unit of the first season of our Opening the Oval curriculum. Um, And then I continue to serve as the LGBTQ plus focus group representative for the Association for Theater and Higher Education through the end of 2023, and as the Digital Media and Gaming Culture Area Chair for the Northeast Popular Culture Association. So, uh, if you participate in any of those conferences or any of those networks, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Please feel free to reach out.
0: <laughs> I really love you. You're uh, you're proactive and also the positive tonality of when you speak. You know, thank I, you. Uh, because this is really something you feel like. Yes, somebody is fi- Somebody wants to do something and really putting the major P on progress here. <laughs> thank you. Great. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, great projects indeed. And I want to thank you also for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. And so all is left is to say, take care and goodbye.
1: Bye. Thank you.
0: So, dear listeners, I hope you liked this episode. If you are an author and or an editor in the field of game studies yourself and want to talk about your latest publication, do not hesitate to contact me under rudolf.inderst at googlemail.com. Punkt is, of course, dot in English. Alternatively, please send me a direct message on social media. You will find me under rudolf.inderst almost anywhere.